America is the land of the second, third, or even tenth chance, where redemption is always possible, where even a jail term isn't necessarily a barrier to holding future public office or being in a position of moral authority. As leaders, we're supposed to regard our moral integrity as inviolate, the lines we never cross. So what happens when you do? What do you need to face and deal with? In this show, we talk to Paul Glover, a former attorney who was convicted of white-collar crimes and served over five years of a seven-year sentence. In subsequent decades, he's become a successful coach to senior leaders in the US with, as he puts it, a no-BS approach. Hey friends, welcome back to the Evolving Leader Podcast. I'm Scott Allender. And I'm John Gomes. How are you feeling on this Friday, my friend? I am feeling like I need to take a breath because I've been running pretty hard this uh, today and this week. So I am delighted to have the uh, the chance to, to hang out with our guest. How are you feeling, Scott? Uh, similar. Uh, my wife's been away on business this week, so I've had my hands full with work and the kids and the whole bit. So looking forward to a, to the weekend, although I'm also uh, on a book deadline, as I know you are. So the, the weekend won't be quite <laughs> as restful as I'd like it to be. But uh, I'm very energized to be here today and, and really interested to get to know our guest a little bit, because today we're joined by Paul Glover. And a little backstory here on Paul. So in 1994, Paul was a successful federal court trial attorney. In 1995, he was a convicted felon, serving seven years of incarceration in federal prison. How Paul and his family managed to overcome the personal and professional setback that he inflicted on himself and his family and how he built a successful national coaching practice is Paul's personal case study about overcoming adversity and setbacks through resilience and grit. His core message, which I'm really eager to hear more about, is We don't succeed in spite of our losses, but because of them. And before your life can change, you need to change. Paul does keynotes and workshops, and in his work, he illustrates how those faced with setbacks, either personal or professional, can develop and use resilience, mental toughness, and grit to take the challenges they face and transform them into growth opportunities. Paul, we are delighted you're here. Thank you for joining us on The Evolving Leader. Scott, Gene, thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and to your audience. Paul, welcome to The Evolving Leader. How are you feeling today? I'm awesome. (laughs) I wake (laughs) up every day and I tell myself that, and I know that that sounds so corny, but the reality is I believe I'm I'm up at five o'clock. I'm a gym rat, but I'm also a Starbucks addict. So on my way to uh, Starbucks, I do a couple of things. I do uh, five gratitudes a day. And this is something I never would have done before I went to prison because I didn't think I needed to. But uh, I found that uh, that when I list my gratitudes in writing and then I go through them five a day, first, I don't forget a gratitude. And second, it sets me my mind. It, it puts me in a positive state to realize how much I have to be grateful for. I think we often forget that, that our lives are very good for the most part. And we do have a tendency to dwell on the negative instead of the positive. So you always start your day with a positive. Paul, I I was intrigued by a talk you gave a while back called Everyone Needs a Fool in Their Lives. In that talk, you tell a a very personal story and honest about your life. Can we start there? Absolutely. In fact, I I had my second opportunity to give that keynote uh, to a group of 200 managers, and I was gratified about how well it was received. And yes, uh, the the concept of having a fool in your life, uh, it begins with me with a history lesson about the value of the fool to a king who, because he'd been anointed by God, was seen to be infallible. And I have to admit this rang true to me with a lot of leaders. They believe that they're infallible, uh, and we know they're not. And even in, in Middle Ages, everyone knew that God was infallible, but they knew that human beings, including the king, was not. So there had to be a counterbalance to divine right, and the counterbalance was the fool. And we see the fool sitting at the throne, uh, foot of the throne of the king, 
dressed in motley attire. They jump up, they caper about, they sing a song, and we believe they were entertainers. That was not the function of the fool. The fool, because he was perceived to be crazy, was not accountable to the same rules about criticizing the king. And so history shows that the fool was actually a trusted advisor who would tell the king when they were making a bad decision, behaving badly. And I believe that everybody today, especially leaders, needs to have a fool in their life. Someone who cares enough about them to tell them the truth about them and their behavior. And uh, that's what the conversation is about in my presentation and workshops about telling people why it's necessary to have a fool. And second, how you actually find one. How, how do you find one? Well, I, I, I would suggest that we, uh, we have fools who, like in the Middle Ages, are all around us, but disguised. Uh, family, friends, coaches, mentors, co-workers, they're all over the place. Uh, we just have to trust them enough to invite them into that role. Uh, and it has to be somebody you not only trust, but you respect. Uh, obviously, otherwise, the advice that they're going to give you, the feedback, is not going to be uh, relevant to you. Uh, so I suggest to people that they look around. How about that? How about we first you have to have self-awareness. Otherwise, you don't see uh, the opportunity. But once you realize you need this person in your life, you will find that person. All these years, John calling me a uh, John calling me a fool. I had no idea you were complimenting me. <laughs> well, well, let, let's be let's be honest about this. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm I'm intrigued with this idea because um, you know when you see the the fool in you know any de depiction of it, they run a gauntlet, don't they? They're always on the edge of of, of, of being incarcerated or worse. Um, for speaking truth to power. Um, and so when you invite somebody in, you're also inviting them into a fairly risky state, you know, position if you're, um, if you're a powerful person that's not as open to the feedback that you might be getting. So what's well, the contract and, you're striking? Well, and you're, you're, you're spot on about that because there has to be a, uh, not only an awareness on the part of the person who is looking for a fool, they have to actually do something that's very hard. They actually have to give them psychological safety. And it's always interesting to me how we get the verbiage right. If I were to ask uh, any leader, were you giving psychological safety to your executive team so they can tell you the truth? They would say, well, absolutely. And the reality is that's bullshit. Uh, I have yet to come across a leader who is that willing to accept criticism, which they view it as not feedback, but criticism from their from their own employees. That's why they go to a guy like me. I find that most most leaders have to get outside their organization to have someone that they feel comfortable enough with and are actually paying to give them that feedback about their behavior and decision making. Uh, and, and I think that's that, that's actually pitiful. I, I dislike that that's the, the routine, but I also believe that leadership is starting to change a bit. They understand that this is required. And if you want to know the truth about yourself and your organization and how it's doing, I guarantee you your employees can tell you that, but they're not going to tell you that if they're afraid of the backlash. And so you have to commit to psychological safety, and then you actually have to mean it. And that is when someone does have the guts to tell you the truth, you must be very careful about not being defensive and not chilling them so that they never do it again. Uh, and that knee-jerk reaction we have when someone tells us something we don't like is truly a matter of self-control, but something you have to be prepared for as a leader. Uh, one, of the, one of the most interesting things I find is when I start with a new coaching client, the first thing I require is a 360 degree because I don't know him or her, but I know that that team that reports to him or her does. And so we do a confidential 360 degree. And the one I always like to start with is communication because there isn't a leader that I've met that doesn't believe they're extraordinarily apt at communicating. And that's because they believe telepathy is how you should communicate. 
So when I, when I find out that they are not a good communicator because their executive team says, we seldom know exactly what he wants us to do, so we guess a lot. Uh, first, they're, they're afraid to ask for clarification. They would rather take the chance of doing it wrong and then suffering that rather than actually ask for clarification. So when I come back to the leader and I go, okay, let me tell you the results of this aspect of the uh, of the 360, because I believe communication is the basis for all leadership. If you're bad at that, I don't know how in the world you think you're going to be a good leader. And when I tell the leader how badly they are uh, at communicating, they're actually shocked. They have to take a moment to reflect. For, they just don't believe it. Uh, but the reality is this now gives me the basis for examining how they communicate, what they communicate. So that's that's a good start. Uh, and if you are willing to accept that critique, we can then move on to the more serious behavioral issues. Before we continue down that road, I'd, I'd be curious to step back and, and come back to your story a little bit. I'm, I'm, I'd like to hear more about um, the role that the, the Fool has played in your life and um, how you came to this, maybe um, as your story unfolded uh, from your time in prison. What was, the, what was going on at that time, and, and how did the role of the Fool change you? Well, first, I definitely needed, desperately needed a Fool in my life. At, from the very beginning, I, I came from a broken home. Uh, my mother and father married and divorced each other twice. Uh, so it was, a, it was a tough upbringing, not terribly tough. I don't mean to say that I was in the straits that some, some children are. But I immediately was, uh, was classified as a loner. And I craved belonging. I, I needed to belong. And a part of the concept of, of why we need a fool is the blind spots that we have that because of the definition, we can't see. And those blind spots generate bad behavior if they're triggered. And what I found was people I associated with who were bad people, uh, my, my job uh, as, a, as a lawyer I represented clients that definitely were bad people, and uh, and but I was an adrenaline junkie, and mm. what they did and how they did it excited me, and so that was a group that I suddenly wanted to belong to, and I tell people I became a bad guy wannabe, mm. and because of that I committed crimes. I commit. I was indicted on thirty three counts of taking bribes, kickbacks, and and tampering with government witnesses. And I was convicted, and rightfully so. I, I tell people, if anyone thinks that I'm saying I don't, I don't bear responsibility, I absolutely did. I made choices. And, and there's no excuse or reason to try to say that they aren't mine. I own them. Uh, but it cost me seven years of my life. Uh, it cost me my law practice, which was very successful. Never practiced law again. And I am just fortunate it didn't cost me my family because... I left them financially destitute after two trials and also the emotional damage. No one knew that I was a criminal. And while everybody knew, family, friends, community, everybody knew it was a highly publicized case. And everybody knew at the end of that, before I went to prison, that I was a crook. And obviously emotionally devastating for my family. Uh, and the fact that they allowed me to continue to be a part of that family is only due to the fact that only after I was in prison for two years did I realize that if I didn't change, I was going to do what so many criminals do, and that is get out, commit similar crimes, and go back to prison. Well, <laughs> I know that I'm a slow learner, but I'm not that slow. And, and I made the decision that I needed to change my life, but I, had, I didn't know how. I mean, I kept looking at my behavior saying, obviously, everybody else believes this is not right. Why don't I see that? Why didn't I see that? And that's when I came to the conclusion that I needed to ask the hard questions of people that I trusted that I believe cared about me. And I started off with my wife and my closest friend. And both of them had been waiting for years to tell me the truth about me. And yet... No one would dare do that because they knew 
what the backlash was going to be from me. I was the smartest guy in the room, and if you challenged me, you were in for a confrontation. And by the way, that's my nature is to be that aggressive. And obviously, as a trial attorney, an successful trial attorney, it even exacerbated those those traits. Because I, I tell people, one of the things that I loved about being a trial attorney was it's the closest thing to hand-to-hand combat you can get and still be legal. And I was good at it. And therefore, I was successful at it. And uh, one of my axioms is the most difficult person for me to coach is someone who's successful. They don't want to hear they have to change. Why would they? Look at me. Look at how good I'm doing. Look at how much money I'm making. Look at the house I live in. Look at how I take care of my family. Why would I want to change? Well, because very, for me in particular, it was self-destructive behavior. And the concept of blind spots is you can't see them, but other people can. And if you are associating with the with people who want to take advantage of you, want to manipulate you, they see what you need and they will force you to give it if you want to belong. And that's exactly what I did. The, the price of admission to the group that I decided I wanted to belong to was committing crimes. And how how we, the concept of how strong these blind spots are. I was standing in front of the federal court judge who was getting ready to sentence me to prison. Now, I'd already been found guilty. There was no question about guilt. It was just how much time was I going to serve. And he offered me the opportunity to reduce my time by a year and a half if I would cooperate with the prosecutor and tell the prosecutor the names of those other people who had participated with me in committing the crimes. And I wouldn't do it. That affiliation with that group was so strong at that time with me that I I was loyal to that group. Even though I was going to prison, didn't matter. That's how strong blind spots are. It took me being removed for two years to finally realize that, that I had to address this behavior. And through someone else, my fools, my wife and my closest friends, I started to have those conversations. And by the way, I am a, a, an example of how hard it was. I hated every minute of hearing what they had to say about me and my behavior. And yet I listened. See, that's another requirement. If you're going to ask somebody to actually be your fool, you have to make a commitment to listen. Step away, reflect. Continue the conversation. Be willing to hear more. And at some point, make the decision you're going to change. This is a, this is, it truly is a transformational journey. And those are the most difficult kind of journeys, right? I was, it was not a hero's journey for me. And that, that after two years in prison, by the way, the first two years, I plotted revenge on everyone that I thought put me in prison. I had revenge fantasies about how I was going to get even. It was only after two years of incarceration that I came to the conclusion I put myself in prison. It was nobody else. And based upon that and my family, if my family had not stuck with me, I don't think I could have done the transformation. You have to have a support group. You have to have people who care about you. And they did. And finally, I went through that process. And with the remaining five years of my incarceration, I worked on being better every day, of examining my blind spots, connecting them to my triggers so that I would know when someone was trying to manipulate me. And therefore, I was ready for it. I could, I could stop it, stop the knee-jerk reaction, and then move in a different direction. That's how it happened. Uh, it, it, it was a difficult journey. It was a necessary journey. And I tell people, if it hadn't occurred, I'd be dead now. There, mm. there was no question about it. If I hadn't went to prison, I would be dead. That's where I was headed, with the group that I associated with. Thank you for sharing this, Paul. Um, I'm really interested in two things. I mean, the conditions in which you are able to kind of examine those things are pretty extreme. Um, I'm guessing, you know, you met with your wife and your friends, you know, occasionally on when they were allowed, you know, to see you. 
uh, and then you, you you were in a very very kind of intense state of having to digest that stuff on your own in a cell. Um, not many of us get a chance to, to have that sort of you know kind of to be able to 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 be confronted with the uh, with this stuff. So, so that there's one aspect of that. But the other the other piece of this is I'd be really interested to know what were the most painful aspects of you know what were the things that you found the hardest to accept in yourself in that feedback you got from from those people well to respond to your first uh, your first observation yeah it, it was i am an extreme case and i point that out to to everyone that is in my coaching program or when i'm doing keynotes and workshops yeah i don't i don't i i pray that you don't have to go to prison to go through this experience and you don't most people are not who I was. Most people were not associating with who I associated with. So, so the opportunity to to not seem have that same amount of intensity is not there. Doesn't mean that you still don't have to go through the same process. I don't believe that there's any way to avoid the process. But the issue is, it's not going to be as difficult as it was for me. Uh, and and so uh, you know, as I uh, as I think about uh, <laughs> what what prompted me, of course, was. And, to make sure I understand your question, John, the, the, the realization about the need to change occurred with two caveats. The first one was I went to uh, I was serving what's considered to be a long bit, a long amount of time in a federal prison camp. See, I had no violence attached to the uh, to the crime uh, that they could prove. And uh, as a side note, the federal court judge had sentenced me. I had practiced in front of for about 10 years. And he made the comment that stuck with me. He said, you are one of the few people I'm sentencing that I wish I could give you more time. But under the sentencing guidelines, he couldn't. Now, that was the reaction of the legal community uh, and those people that I knew to what I had done. So when I went to prison, uh, I had a long bit, five, five and a half years is what I served. Uh, and a lot of people going to first-time offenders went to the same prison, federal prison camp, but they were doing one or two years. So by the second year, I started to see people who had been there when I arrived and got out, come back. And it suddenly occurred to me the recidivism is 80% for a reason. People don't change. They go back to the same environment. They, they associate with the same people. And you know what they do? The same thing. And I said, oh, my God, uh, again, I'm a slow learner, but I'm not that slow. And, and I decided that that wasn't going to happen to me. I wasn't coming back to prison. I did not like the experience. Uh, and the second thing was my family. If my family had not stayed with me, I don't, I'm not sure I could have made the transformation. So when I talk to people, I talk to them about first being aware of the damage they're doing because it's all around you. You can see it if you want to look at it and look for it. Uh, and if you don't think it is, ask people around you. Again, finding that fool is essential. And the second thing is you have to truly commit to change because, not because of, of any material gain, but the emotional gain for yourself and those around you. If you are a leader, you need to look at that, uh, that bad behavior, that toxic environment that you may be creating. And when we can do this so easily because of positional authority, when we say something, people see it or hear it more powerfully than we may mean it to be. We need to become self-aware about the impact that this has. And I was able to do that. And just how, how, I, how I talked to my wife changed. Because the fact she drove down five and a half hours every month to spend two days with me in a visiting room with 300 other inmates was a, a, a realization of the commitment she had made to the relationship. And I truly believe that reciprocity governs a lot of our behavior. I was, I was compelled to reciprocate. And the way I could reciprocate was starting to appreciate her and what she had to say to me. And that is truly a part of the process. You not only have to not be defensive and listen, you also have to verbally physically express appreciation for the fool who is telling you the truth about you, giving you the gift of truth. That's what I call it. It is a gift. 
You recognize it as a gift. You appreciate those that are offering you this gift. You accept it with gratitude. That, that's where you've got to go with this. And, and a lot of people obviously struggling through this. And I think that leaders in particular, the higher up they go in the organization, the more difficult it is because they do believe they're infallible. So they're not vulnerable. They're not authentic, which means they don't want the feedback. But if you get it, appreciate it, thank them for it, then change. So your life began to change the moment that you invited your wife and your friend to hold up a mirror of truth to you. And you're talking about executives and people you work with who don't want to see that mirror. Uh, how do you sort of persuade them to want to look in the mirror? Well, I, I don't. My coaching consists of legacy. If you, if you need someone to teach you about time management, coach you about time management, I'm not your person. Uh, I, I, it, it does not intrigue me, and it should not. It's a waste of your time, my time, and your money. But if you want to talk to me about legacy, about creating legacy, we now have the common ground that we can start to look deeply into your behavior and how and what you have to do to create legacy. And that's creating something with purpose and meaning that when you're done, when, when, when your act is done and you have to exit stage left, you're able to give that legacy to someone else to continue to build. And if the person is willing to look at their career, their job as leader in that perspective, it changes the way they look at how they act. Short-term behavior, I just I, I'm more than happy to talk to people about how they need to not act a certain way, but I want them to think ahead. I want them to tell me what is your is your you have a five year uh, runway here. What do you want to leave behind when you're gone? And that changes the person's perception. And that's the conversation that I have before I I enter into a coaching agreement with anyone, because if they first don't want to do that. And second, if they don't want to commit to the process, then it's not going to work. And I can tell you, know, as a federal trial attorney, you become very attuned to bullshit. In fact, I bill myself as the no BS workplace performance coach. And so when I start to have this conversation, I, I can tell whether someone's going to commit or not. Uh, and I realize that may sound egotistical, but it's not. You, you, if you've done this long enough, I've been doing this now, I've been out of prison for 20 years, so I've got a, a pretty good record of being able to determine who's going to do well in my coaching program mm -hmm. because I'm going to make a commitment of my time and energy, but I'm also going to commit 50% of my compensation. 50% of my compensation is based on we reach, we, the two of us, reach the results that's being set to develop legacy. And if I can't help you do that, then I don't deserve the compensation. Also, though, I'm very money motivated. I still can't get that out of my system. Uh, and, and if I've got 50% of my compensation that's tied to your success, I guarantee you we're going to be successful. <laughs> Actually, one of my clients calls me a Sherpa. He said, Paul can take you up the mountain, but he's not going to carry your pack. <laughs> and that's exactly the way I look at it. So it's, it's, it's turning that perspective away from short term. It's telling them, do you want to be better than you are? Because, again, if you are a successful person, you may not want to change. You don't want to do the hard work. I'm okay with that. I really am. 80% of the people who come to me don't work with me. Because after our first month, they're like, this is too hard. You're asking me to be to do too much. I'm like, you're right. You need. I, I'm good with that. Thank you. Thank you for having the opportunity to at least have the discussion. Uh, the other 20% commit to a 12-month program where we actually do the hard work together. And because I've been there, I truly, I have done the journey. And so I am, I am someone that they can look at and go, well, First, I think they say, I'll never be as bad as you. <laughs> and I'm like, thank God. <laughs> right? so, so we have the benchmark. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. I'm like, yeah, first, don't run away. Don't run away from your experiences. And I find that so interesting that people want to run away from their bad experiences. And I believe you have to embrace them. I did. 
I can tell you maybe out of necessity, but I think that being a leader requires you go, good part, bad part, it's all me. And, and, and I'm going to take this as a composite and I'm going to use it. We learn from what? Unfortunately, we learn from bad more than we do from good. And at some point, you have to say, I'm embracing. And how about sharing? <laughs> I love the fact everybody has fun sharing good news. When it comes to bad news, it's amazing how far away leaders run from bad news. It's a part of the gig. Uh, you've got to be willing to do that. So that, that's where we start. We start with the concept of, no, your behavior will never be as bad as mine, thank God. And by the way, but let's talk about what it is. And it really, it's curious to me that, that, uh, that I provide the comfort zone that allows them to expose their own faults because they do look at me and go, can't be that bad. And I'm like, you're right. It's not. Now let's I'm, talk about it. I'm really interested in this for uh, just a pause on this for a moment, which is this kind of psychological relationship that you have with somebody who has, you know, you're, you're coaching, which is a very personal relationship and you're, you're coaching with somebody who has gone through this experience, who's kind of transgressed one of society's norms and is very open about it and obviously has grown tremendously through the process. What do you think that contract looks like? You know, you just started to, to kind of describe it a little bit, but, you know, how, how do people feel about you and feel about themselves in your presence? Well, I, and by the way, I, I tell people I'm an acquired taste. Uh, you either, you're either okay with it or you're not. There's no in between, and I don't want there to be. Uh, because first, if you're going to use the jargon with me about I'm going to be authentic, I'm going to be vulnerable, I'm going to communicate, whatever that is, that, then I don't want to hear that this is bullshit. And I keep using the word. I hope it doesn't offend your audience. But, but really, if that offends them, then they certainly don't want anything to do with me. <laughs> and, and, and I can only tell you that, that I can tell just because of my own experience, but also just doing this for a while, when someone is not committed to that. And if you're not, then our relationship cannot grow. Uh, if it is, then, then we start to explore your blind spots because you've got to be willing to let me see them. And then you've got to be willing to communicate with me about them. And we need to talk about those triggers. Then we have to start not only preparing you, but, but kind of hardening those. Right. That knee jerk reaction has got to stop. I tell people, take a breath. <laughs> right. When someone tells you something you don't like, take a breath, maybe two, maybe five minutes. If things aren't going well in a conversation, do you really just want to keep going down that path? Now, what do you think you're going to accomplish here? Uh, but so so it, it, it is that openness that I bring to the process without any pretensions. And I think that that's what makes me successful. I don't have credentials to coach, uh, nor do I want to go get them, by the way. Uh, also, I will shift from coach to advisor if I believe you're going down for the third time. It, it, I don't want someone doing, I'm not a psychiatrist. You don't have to figure out the answer on your own. If you don't know what it is after we've attempted that conversation, I'm going to say, listen, I may be wrong. It's happened before, not often, but I think this is the deal. You need to now ponder that. You need to reflect on that. Then I want you to come back to me and say, you're right or you're wrong or it's in between. But we continue to generate those conversations. And once again, in the context of legacy, you suddenly have a much longer term perspective of the process. And I think that that helps a lot because everyday firefighting is, is just draining. Uh, and, and it's very difficult to maintain the level of energy you need to be a leader. But if you can look beyond the daily, it suddenly gives you more meaning and purpose in the relationships and how you interact. If you're enjoying The Evolving Leader, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. And don't forget to follow along on Instagram and LinkedIn. You can find us at Evolving Leader. Thank you for listening. Now, let's get back to the show. You talk about there being these kind of uh, windows of opportunity happening throughout our lives every day. What are they and, and how do you find them? First, you've got to be looking for them. Uh, I, I find that, that, that windows of opportunity will pass people every day, but they're not looking. So if you don't know what you're looking for, you will never see it. 
And that's a part of the conversation. What do you want to be? How do you want to be perceived? What do you want your organization to look like? What is the meaning? You know, and I do believe in the hero's journey. I think that every leader is engaged in a hero's journey. And the concept of, of being successful is not to avoid the adversity, the setbacks, because they're part of that the journey. So you've got to look out and find people who want to go on the journey with you. And that's a daily opportunity to, 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 to develop a relationship. You know, when I started off, uh, the concept of being personal with people was taboo. As a leader, you were required to be professional. Think about the way we dressed. Mm-hmm. Ty, I went to court in a three-piece suit and a, and a watch and a, you know, a chain and, uh, and a tie. Just the whole deal was a costume. That was, re- that was absolutely expected. I actually had a judge that, that stopped the trial and required me to go get a white shirt. I was wearing a blue shirt. And in his wow. courtroom, white shirts were de rigueur. And we stopped. I went to Marshall Fields, left, went to Marshall Fields, got a white shirt, came back and continued. So, so yeah, that's, that is the structure, the, the rigid structure that we existed in. And it's still there. Thank God it's starting to dissolve. And if there's nothing that comes out of the pandemic except this, it was to show the flaws in that type of relationship and leadership. Because now employees are saying loud and clear, I need you to care about me as a person. So the concept of professional is now being melded in with personal. Now that doesn't mean intimate, by the way. It just means that now I have to I have to recognize you as a human being, as someone who's other than, than a replaceable part, sustainable employee. That's what I'm looking for. And that's what you should be looking for as a leader, sustainable employee. And the way you do that is two things. I think that first, you know, we we talk about being uh, active listeners, not good enough. Empathetic listener. That's the new one I'm using. You not only are listening, but you are an empathetic listener. That ties you in even better to the person that you are interacting with. Uh, and the second thing is you better be perpetually curious. I, I, uh, people who aren't curious should not be leaders because the opportunity to examine what's going on around them requires that they be curious. Uh, one of my axioms is you should always be looking for trouble. Hmm. It's there. And once you've developed relationships, people will tell you about the trouble. But until that happens, you need to be looking for it. Ask the questions. You know, it's one of those things that you, on a daily basis, you interact and you develop relationships with people now, with employees, and you ask them to come on the journey with you. You can't force somebody. Discretionary effort cannot be forced. It's earned. Can't pay for it. So if you want that, and by the way, I believe discretionary effort is what success in an organization is all about. Get enough people who are willing to do that, to give that, and you suddenly have a meaningful vision that you can fulfill. Hmm. I like that. I preach curiosity all the time myself. So um, if we can turn uh, change tax a moment, and I'm curious about your book um, from 2012. Uh, you wrote a book called Workquake about how organizations can successfully make the seismic shift to the knowledge economy. I'm curious what you've been observing in the last 10 years since you published that book. Well, when I, when I finished, and by the way, I hate writing. <laughs> I can talk like we're talking now. I, have, I, I just love to talk. Uh, it's how I earn my living. Writing is a chore for me, but I felt that I had a message, and the message is contained within the, the book. And when I finished and gave it to the editor, I said, I hate this book. Absolutely hate the book. And he said, why? I said, because nobody is going to read it or do it. Ten years later, I actually feel prescient. The things that I talk about in that book, about self-care for leaders, about how you interact with your employees, is suddenly becoming a part of the lexicon. Uh, I wish I could tell you that that matters with book sales. It hasn't. But regardless, it now is something that I look at and I say, yes, as I look at leadership and what it has to be, it took a pandemic 
before people started to believe this change was needed. I, I mean, when I look at the Great Resignation, all I hear is people, employees saying, I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. So when you talk about the book, all I can tell you is I broke it into two pieces. Leadership, lead, it's called the morning mantra, the sections, the two sections, the morning mantra and the bottom line. The bottom line was all about leadership lessons. One of them was, if you look at a spreadsheet, just to tell you, pull something out of there. If you look at a spreadsheet, the first thing you have to realize is there's a face behind the number on that spreadsheet. If you are so caught up in the numbers that you, that's how you guide your life, you're doing it wrong. Look at the person who generated the number, and that way the number will increase. Once you see them, once you look into their eyes, once you acknowledge who they are and what they do, that number increases. So that was the bottom line. Every story in there uh, was connected to something that came out of the coaching process. Uh, the morning mantra was all about health, self-care. Uh, the, th the three stools of, of being physically, uh, mentally, and, uh, and sleep active, all of the things that are now being preached, was back, I, I believed in it back then. Uh, I think the book is now more relevant than it was then because I think people actually read it. I, I just did a keynote, and for the first time, uh, a company said, bring your books. <laughs> I was like, what? Oh, my God. Someone really wants me to bring a book? Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> so anyway, that that's the sum total. I wish I, I could take you page by page, but no, too boring. So what 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 do you think is um, in all of the coaching conversations you've had in the last two years? What what do you think is kind of happen? As a result of COVID and and the uh, you know the kind of lessons that leaders have gained from that experience. Well, command and control is not dead. I wish I could tell you that the pandemic had killed it off, but it is certainly less obvious and less a part of the uh, a part of the status quo. Uh, leadership is starting to realize that employees are stakeholders, and that if you don't treat them like stakeholders, they will leave. And I think that that's a huge, huge message because thinking about pre-pandemic, the standard of living for most employees had been going down for 40 years. Now, suddenly it's going up, but only because the realization of the part of the employee was, I'm not going to, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to be treated like this anymore. Uh, so the concept of stakeholder capitalism has got to, it, it's taken root. I don't know how far it's grown. But, but it's there, and the concept is now much more appropriate for leaders to look at. Uh, and not to say that shareholders and owners are not entitled to their share of the, of the rewards of risk, but at the same time, if you're looking for sustainable employees who will grow your business and stay with you, retention is terrible, uh, engagement is terrible, and, and if you want those things, you have to change the, from transactional leadership to relationship leadership, because that's where you get engagement. And I don't believe it's hard. I, I, I'm constantly shocked by how hard people want to make leadership. You know, and I know I may sound simplistic, but I'm okay with that, uh, because I think I'm right. Uh, I actually advocate the three A's. If you want engagement, there's attraction, attention, and appreciation. Those are the things that generate engagement. If you're an attractive leader, and by the way, I'm not talking about physical beauty, even though I'm sure that doesn't hurt, but the reality is bald guys like Scott and I can still be really good <laughs> leaders. So, so the deal is, though, that you have to be a positive person. You have to have the hero's journey. Be a persuasive storyteller. People love stories. In fact, make them a part of the story. Come along with me on this journey, this hero's journey. And yes, we will face adversity. But we're going to overcome and we're going to move towards the end goal together. That is an attractive leader. That's someone that will draw quality people to them because they are clear and concise about who they are. They're authentic. They're vulnerable. They will share. <laughs> Look, one of the things that I think most leaders are terrible at is saying, I don't know. 
Oh my God, how dare you say that? You're the infallible king, aren't you? How, how can you not know? The whole, the whole kingdom is collapsing. Of course not. Let's get serious about this. As a leader in today's complex society and workforce, you don't know. But I guarantee you, some, someone in your organization does. How about if you go ask them? They'll tell you the answer. The second part of that is, is, uh, is attention. Let's say, I, human beings crave attention. They want you to see them. They want you to know them. And yes, does this take time? It does, but it's not hard. It just takes time. And as a leader, isn't this your job? I mean, I'm trying to figure out what your job is if it's not these things. Uh, I don't know. Keep looking at the numbers. They don't change. You know why? The people don't change. Change the people, the numbers change. And the last one is appreciation. We will sit in a restaurant, ask someone at another table and pass us the salt, and we say thank you. How many times a day do we say thank you for the person who's actually generating the outcome that we're paying them for? I always thought it was interesting during the pandemic. Here it is, Friday. Everybody's gone through another terrible week, and you're going to go home for a couple of days, and you know what the, the boss says? See you on Monday. That's like an invitation back to hell. It's like, I hated this week, but I should come back for some more. How about we tell them, I, I appreciate you. Give them a hug. Actually, actually, just be all about how important they are to you and your organization. Change your attitude about this. Uh, the three A's work. If you do those, engagement increases. An organization I work with uh, normally get, up, get their engagement up into the high 80s because they change their mindset about those three things. I'd like to come back to something you said at the beginning about how you start your day with your uh, gratitude practice and having heard your story, um, very powerful story. I'd like to, to know what you're feeling most grateful for today. Well, I always start every, every list. And again, I, I go through my entire list and my gratitudes are primarily about people the people in my life. And obviously every morning starts with my wife because without her, we wouldn't be having this conversation. And so she tops the list. And after that, I go, I go through family, friends, work acquaintances, people in my coaching program, and then I will start over. So every week I rotate back and we go through it again. And, uh, and it, it, it's just, it's such a simple exercise to do. First, you actually have to sit down and make the list. If you don't write it out, you're going to leave people off. But even the writing the list suddenly changes your perspective when you realize how many people in your life you have to be grateful for. And so that, that's it. I mean, it, and, and again, I, I, you know, the simple things in life, my wife and son came down. They picked me up. I was coming back to Chicago to be resentenced. I actually took my case to the Supreme Court, and they reduced this, the sentence. I uh, wasn't found innocent of anything. They just said that under the sentencing guidelines, the judge, who obviously wanted to give me more time, had given me too much time. So they were going to reduce it. Of course, by this time, I'd spent the time that I was going to get off back in prison. It wasn't like I got out early. But, but uh, so they, they came down. They picked me up. And I drove back with them. They drove, and uh, and we were home. And everybody goes to bed at uh, you know five o'clock in the morning. I'm awake. I get up. First day I haven't been in prison in five years. And uh, I get dressed. I'm quiet. I don't want to wake anyone up. And I realize that I can, I have the freedom to leave the house. All right. First time in five years, I've got the freedom to choose: can I leave or stay? And I go to my wife's purse because I have no money. And I take out a $5 bill and I walk to Starbucks. Now it's been five years since I've had a latte and I am a Starbucks addict. It didn't go away while I was in prison. I just couldn't satisfy it. So I walk there in the dark and they've just opened and I walk inside and the barista is there, a young woman. And I say, I, I want a, uh, a grande latte, uh, no foam extra shot. Didn't, it wasn't like I forgot my order. So, so I give her the money and she makes the drink and she hands it to me. And she says, you know, sir, uh, this is the first one of the morning. So it not, might not taste right. <laughs> and I tell you, I actually think you back to that. I was like, you have no idea how good. <laughs> and that was that moment of freedom 
when I suddenly realized that I was back home. And it's the little things. That's what I tell people. We are looking for the home run when we have so many singles. Recognize the thing that matters, the little thing that makes people. We can make every person that we interact with have a memorable moment if we choose to. Every person. There is no reason not to. Why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we talking to everyone that we meet in a positive situation? And why not? Why don't we recognize their value for them? To me, that that the concept is what makes us human beings and connects us. And I thought that during the pandemic, we started to do that with essential workers who have been ignored for way too long. And suddenly we were applauding them when they came out. Why? God, why wouldn't we? They're the ones keeping the systems operating, keeping people alive. So no, it, 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 it's, it's a mindset that everyone can have, but we get so focused on ourselves, so self-centered. I was absolutely self-centered. I didn't see anybody else. Everything else rotated around me. So we're so self-centered that we're not aware of other people and what they need. And, and that's not to say there are people that you should stay away from. I absolutely believe. Uh, and my wife is my true north. Whenever I start hanging around somebody she doesn't like, she's like, no, not that person. Because that person is looking at you in a different and negative fashion. Let's do the little things every day. Why not? Make the world a better place a step at a time. I feel like we need Mrs. Glover on this show as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, she, she feels like she's quite an extraordinary person, given uh, you know Absolutely. obviously the support she gave you, the forgiveness, and you know the, the kind of rehabilitation that she's you know been involved. Oh God, in. it's, yeah, uh, amazing. She, yeah, yeah. Financial destitute, emotionally devastated. Yeah, uh, so she gets to uh, be the deciding voice. By the way. Uh, my judgment's terrible. <laughs> That's why <laughs> her judgment's spot on. So when she says it, I do it. That's it. So yes, she's uh, she's the north star. Well, on that, uh, Paul, I think we'll we'll bring it to a close and uh, say thank you for for joining us on the Evolving Leader. It's been yeah, a, you, uh, a really special show, and it's kind of made me and Scott and uh, I'm sure our audience think about the world slightly differently because Mm. um, the idea of the fool is really extraordinary but to think about how um, what your life would be like um, if it it went down a different path um, from what you're expecting on the basis that you just can't see something uh, that everybody else can see so thank you for sharing that um, and I'm really grateful to you. Well, Gene and Scott, first, I appreciate, obviously, the opportunity to do exactly that. Uh, as, as my wife says, it's cheap therapy. <laughs> well, no, there is a bill. There is a bill coming. <laughs> well, she, I, I hope you don't expect her to pay it. <laughs> and for our listeners, remember, the world is evolving. Are you? Are you?